Jason, thank you for leading us. Let's get our Bibles out, open to Acts chapter 2. We're four weeks into our look at the first section of Acts, kingdom culture. We come to this very important, familiar, pivotal, controversial, any sort of adjective you can put to it, section of Scripture. So we're going to have some fun this morning. What I want us to do is read the section first and just let it settle upon us. And then I'll pray and we'll work our way through it. Okay? Acts chapter 2, page 1253 in your pew Bible. If you didn't bring a copy of God's Word, just open to 1253. Acts 2, verse 1. The Scripture says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews... Devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in their own language. They were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and to the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors of Rome, both Jew and proselyte, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongue the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, They are full of of new wine. Let's pray. Father, we come before your word, and Lord, we are humbled this morning at what is before us. And Lord, we are grateful for your presence with us. We are thankful and humbled by the fact that as a fellowship, we get the privilege and the honor to see your spirit work among us. And so we thank you for his transforming work, for the evidences in this fellowship that show us undeniably that you are working among us. But Lord, we're also humbled by the reality and the, the question of do we fully know all that you have done on our behalf? Do we long to access all that you have provided for us through the Spirit? And so, Lord, we, we pray this morning that, that your breath would blow like the wind through this place. 
and that you would move among us in such a way that we would know for sure that it was you. And God, we, we want all that you have for us. And so we pray in advance that you might do so for the glory and honor of the Lord Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Now, when you read the first section of Acts chapter 2, really the only question that you could come to first would have to be, what happened? What happened? One minute, there's a group of 120 people sitting in a, in a room, and the next minute, it is utter uh, seeming chaos. But what has taken place is so astonishing, so overwhelming, so unexplainable, so unique that all you could say is, what happened? If you, if you lived in Panama City, Florida and were in a coma and you awoke last Thursday from a coma... And looked out the window or turned on the television and saw footage of what used to be your home. You would say, what happened? I spoke to uh, one of our first responders that has been over there. They were among the very first teams to go in after Michael passed and we were talking yesterday, and he said to me, uh, the only way that he can describe what he sees is it, it looks like Hiroshima. It looks like somebody dropped an atom bomb. And, of course, we know what that looks like. We know what it feels like. We know what it smells like. My stomach gets sick every time I watch footage. But you would say, well, what happened? When you come home at the end of a day and you walk into the, your house and one of your children is sitting on the couch or laying on the floor crying, you ask the question, what happened? What happened? You missed it. All you know is something has happened. Well, 2,000 years ago, this messianic figure dies on a cross with a handful of followers in the most nondescript place on earth. And somehow today... He has over 2 billion followers. You can't go anywhere on the planet. You can't, you, can't, you can't go to any nation and not meet someone who follows him. You, you can't really study any significant culture and not 
at least have to relate in some way to how his life has impacted that culture. The world has never been the same. And so the question is, well, what happened? How could could a, a little group of people, 120 people, none of them with any prominence, no resources, no position, no authority. In fact, every odd stacked against them. What happened? So to answer the question, what happened, the only thing we can say this morning is the Holy Spirit happened. That's what happened. The Holy Spirit happened. Jesus made quite a, quite a splash. He made quite an impact in his three years of earthly ministry, in his 30-some-odd years of life. He impacted a lot of people. He, he, he was known throughout the region, but nothing that would even come close to explaining what has happened since. It is really this moment that, like an atom bomb, just exploded across the face of the earth. So this Acts chapter 2 moment. Has that happened in your life? Has the Holy Spirit descended upon your life in such a way that you are undeniably different? What's it like for people who knew you before when they see you for the first time in a long time? What do they say? What do they notice? What is it about you that gets their attention? Do people meet you and walk away from meeting you and think, what happened? What happened? So let's talk about some some things that we see happen here. Number one, when the Holy Spirit comes, mission happens. Mission happens. They've been waiting together for ten days. They don't know how long it's going to be. They don't know on the tenth day that today's the day, but... Suddenly, wind, something like wind and fire starts to come upon them. And what is their immediate response to the Holy Spirit? That's really what's telling to me. There's no blueprint 
This has never happened before. Nobody, no one has prepared for this. No one. So what you're seeing is this raw, natural, authentic, genuine response to the Holy Spirit. What happens to someone when the Holy Spirit falls on them and they yield themselves to the Holy Spirit without regards to peer pressure, without regards to anything that they've seen someone do before or, or some way they've been indoctrinated in the way they were raised or grew up or what they've seen or anything. Just a blank slate, Holy Spirit lands on a person and what's the immediate response? Look at verse 4. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and... You should underline, you should circle. Began to speak. That's the first thing that happens. They begin to speak. It doesn't say they began to dance. It doesn't say they began to sing. It doesn't say, think of all the things it could say. But it says they began to speak. And here's what you have to understand. The passage goes on to tell us that they're speaking about the marvelous works of God. The mighty works of God. Don't forget the context of where they are and what is going on around them. There are 120 people in a city surrounded by millions. They're not the majority they're following someone who has just been crucified by the powers that be. Every, the least comfortable thing you could possibly do in their situation would be to speak of the mighty works of God. It's not like the, the world is a receptive place. It's not like the the. the the crowds are gathered outside waiting for the Spirit to fall on these 120 and waiting for them to come out and let them know what happened. No, nobody wants to hear what they have to say. And, and the powers that be are not open to even allowing it. And so when I say mission happens, the first thing that you just undeniably have to see is that Instantly, they move away from a pattern of self-preservation. Instantly. In speaking, they are literally putting themselves in great danger, humanly speaking. I mean, to proclaim the name of the most controversial figure of the time, someone who's just been executed, Mm. risking certain persecution, probable death. But they don't care what the authorities have to say or may try to do. As we'll see as we continue through this study, they utterly refuse to be quiet. They couldn't. When, when the disciples the apostles, when the followers of Jesus sitting in that room, when they, when they see the Holy Spirit descend on one another, 
Just think about this. To them, it was clear. God was equipping them to do what Christ had commissioned them to do. They, they could, that's what happened. They knew that. They responded with speaking about this resurrected Jesus who is alive and on the throne. Remember chapter 1 verse 6. The question the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, when will you or will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, they're in you know, self-preservation mode. They're in, here's what we think ought to happen. Here's what we predict. This is our agenda. This is what we think. And then Jesus responds two verses later in Acts 1-8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to what? Be witnesses. But it's not just in Israel Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what happened. They immediately were on mission. And the Holy Spirit in them immediately began to become this voice through which they would proclaim the gospel. Notice that it says that the Spirit, as the Spirit gave them utterance, so you see, the Spirit is speaking through them. They're yielding to the Spirit, and it's moving through them, and the gospel's going forth and being heard by spiritually dead souls all around them. So we could think of it this way. When the Spirit of God comes, we'll know it because we immediately turn from me to mission. We know it. It's evident. And anywhere that you find a group of professing believers that are focused on me, the Spirit of God is not there. It's not there. It's not there. If you will learn anything through the book of Acts, you will, especially about the Spirit of God, it is that right there. Over and over and over, we will see time and time again, God teach us this lesson. It is a spiritual kingdom with earthly implications. And it's astonishing to me how often I see the church of our day get that backwards. It's astonishing. They begin to order their lives around the mission. They begin to change things. I mean, what, what, what is that? What would that look like today among us? Well, what would it look like if you began to reorder your life around the mission? Well, we know what that would look like because we see it here. We see it. We see each other reorienting our priorities embracing hard things for the glory of God, don't we? We see that. 
we see people asking hard questions like, hmm, so how are we going to educate our children that will best prepare them to be used for the glory of God? We see parents asking that. We see people asking questions like, well, how are we going to spend our money to best be available to be a part of the mission of God? What comfort can we do away with in our life to be a blessing and a servant to someone else in need? We see that. That is clearly evidence of the Spirit of God. You know, in, instead of asking questions like, what would be the easiest, most comfortable thing for me to do? Well, in our culture, that question is almost always answered by nothing. Just don't do anything. Just Keep riding along, doing what you're doing. Isn't that true? And so the pressure that we always feel in here from the Spirit of God is always, it feels like change all the time, doesn't it? But it's the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God that makes you say, well, Everything's going good, and look at how good God's been to us. So let's just circle the wagons and keep enjoying it. Instead, the Spirit of God says, no, what you need to do is plant a church. Send a pastor and a bunch of people and go start a new fellowship. Why would you do that? All it's going to do is make it hard on everybody. All it's going to do is... make the people without the Spirit of God mad. It's the truth. It's the truth. See, the Spirit of God saying, no, it's about the mission. The Spirit of God saying, there's, there's things that I have for you to do. There's a window of opportunity that you have to move in. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard, but that's how we make the greatest impact for the kingdom. We have to remember, I think we need to just be reminded of, uh, clarify the mission because it, it can get kind of fuzzy sometimes. So let's use these next blanks on our handout to just clarify the mission of the church. I don't mean... A building, I mean a people, was to do one thing, and that's to create followers of Jesus Christ. To leverage their lives in a disciple-making culture, endeavor, to create, to make, to bring people to fully functioning, mature, multiplying followers of Jesus. And that cannot happen without an initial Speaking up, stepping out, moving forward. And you don't just move forward in anything. 
You move forward specifically. Specifically for that purpose. And so we're so fanatical about that. Well, let me rephrase that. I'm so fanatical about this that I just repel lots of things that seem like really good ideas. But if they don't fit the mission, I just, I don't think we should be doing it. I just don't think we should be doing it. Even in, the, even in the way that we do certain things, it's very intentional to be a part of the mission. It's not just to do something good so that we feel like we've done something good. We want to do something good in a very specific and strategic way. So we... We raise children who don't have parents to make followers of Jesus. That's why we do that. We advocate on their behalf so that their lives would be impacted. We can plant seeds in their heart about Jesus. That's why we do that. We, we move outside these walls because we want to involve ourselves all the places that we operate in mission are specifically and strategically around discipleship gospel centered creating people who follow Jesus that's what it is we don't just swoop into places and hand out a bunch of food and then preach a sermon and invite people to pray a prayer and then get on a plane and fly home that's not what we do. We make sure that we're sowing seeds into the kingdom so that the, there's a local church, there's an indigenous pastor that's raised up and trained and it's ongoing. And We even do that in the way that we respond to disaster. You know that? There, we... we you have been so generous, and I'm sure we'll continue to be as a church, and we'll continue to be involved in what's going on in North Carolina and from Florence, and especially in Florida because of how accessible it is for us. So Tuesday, this Tuesday, we'll, me and the other pastors and some of you, will go to Panama City. And we'll bring with us all the supplies needed to put a roof on a building. But it's not just a building that needs a roof. It's a building that provides shelter over a boy's home. Where they're making disciples, where they're taking children who otherwise have nowhere else to be. Some are foster kids, some are troubled youths who maybe their single mom couldn't handle them anymore, whatever the case may be, and they bring them into this home and they raise them, essentially. And because of what they do, they obviously can't get insurance, and so when the hurricane blows their roof off, they're just in trouble. And when I... When I talk to them on the phone, all they do is cry. That's all they do is cry. 
because you're just one little dot in a sea of pain and suffering and you know how's help going to make it to me but so you we will go over there and we'll put a roof on this building but it's a building that is part of the mission you see what i'm saying it's part of the mission And we'll keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. Whatever it takes to create followers of Jesus. I mean, think about, think about the situation here. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no church in Acts chapter 2. I mean, you can't go to church. They are the church. The church wasn't for church people because there weren't any. The church wasn't a building because there was no building. It wasn't about, there, there was no, it was the only time in the history of the church that there was no, there was no controversy over the way things were done because it had never been done before. Nobody was whining and complaining about anything because it had never been done. Nobody was saying, well, I wish it was well, because it never happened before. Think about it. Wouldn't it be evident? Isn't it evident? Don't you see evidence of the Spirit of God in this place around you, in the lives of people? Because I see it all the time. And when you see it, you know it. And when you don't see it, you know it. Because in a, in a pure environment with no presuppositions, no expectations, the Spirit of God falls and we see how people respond and we go, hmm, that's what it would look like. That's what it ought to look like. Do you see that in your life and in your family? Mission happens. The second thing that happens when the Spirit of God falls, it's really just evident here, is mending happens. We'll have a lot of opportunity to talk about this over the coming months, but mending happens. It's so wonderful. Look at verse 4. So the Spirit falls and they begin to speak. And then what? With other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Look at verse 5. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Gathered there for what? Gathered there for Pentecost. They all came to the city for Pentecost. And then this sound occurs. They hear it. A multitude comes together. And they were confused because everyone heard them speak in their own language. And they were all amazed and marveled. And they looked at each other and thought, Are not these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one in our own language in which we were born? And so from every single nation, all the surrounding nations, you find 
people. And they hear them speaking at the end of verse 11. In their own tongues, the wonderful works of God. Now, what do we see mending here? Well, if we go back to the book of Genesis, we see where the separation occurred. Where the nations were divided. And since the days of the Tower of Babel, they've been... Language was confused. And the confusion of languages brought all sorts of challenges. But what's interesting to me is that in an instant, the Spirit of God comes, and it's the way the Spirit chooses to work. Because clearly, God can do anything. But this is what God chooses to do. Now, you think about this with me for a second. There's a single message that is suddenly understood by all. Hmm. So I would say the arrival of the Holy Spirit was the mending of Babel. The mending of Babel. Have you ever thought about this? I wonder why when the Spirit showed up, why didn't ears of fire fall? And so everyone just spoke Hebrew and everyone heard in their own language. Why didn't God do that? How come God chose to have them speaking in different languages instead of maybe hearing in different languages? See, if we think about what happened at the Tower of Babel, the people of God came together in one place. At that time, when they gathered together, they spoke a common language. And their attempt was to wrongfully and pridefully and sinfully build a tower to prove their uh, capacity, to prove their ability to be able to reach up to heaven and be mighty like God. And so as a result of their sin, mankind is separated and given different languages. And then for centuries that follow, that moment has so many implications moving forward. We see all sorts of economic animosities and racial hatred and strife. And the world is torn apart by its differences. And we look at our own country today and we see that we're being torn apart by our differences. We're being pulled apart because people among us choose to focus on our differences and around the world there are people groups being slaughtered. Slaughtered simply because they live in a place and look differently or speak a different language. And so they're being systematically eradicated from the face of the earth, or at least attempted to be. And here at Pentecost, we have all these different people from all these different places 
separated by language. And then the Spirit comes and gives them the ability to communicate one message that's understood in your own language. We haven't changed the language. It's in your own language. Hmm. So what would it have meant if in Acts chapter 2 we see where they only spoke Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew? What would that tell us? Well, then it would have been a message to the exclusion of outsiders. But it wasn't that at all. Instead, the very first day of a spirit-filled church... Everyone worships God, but in their own language, which is a radical, bold declaration that the gospel is for the whole world. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you can't see that, that every people, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, the gospel is clearly for everyone because the Spirit of God makes that Absolutely clear. If there were any body who were special, it would have been evident. But everyone is equally given equal access, no matter where you're from, equal access to the gospel. Hmm. So it tells us some things about ourselves. You know, I mean, the message of Pentecost is that something's changing here. Mending's happening. And, and for us, that we're part of this kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus. And we should be reminded that our identity, as we just sang, is not in our tribe. It's not in our people group. It's not in our ethnicity or our nationality. See, we're not first and foremost citizens of the United States or members of some race. That's not what we are. We're first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God has a whole different way of looking at differences. It has a whole different way of going forth into... It's not diversity. What, what you see here is the Spirit of God embraces diversity. Here's the chance. If you wanted to go back to one people and one language and one thing, this is when it would have happened. Amen? But it didn't happen. What's that telling us? The Spirit of God is embracing this. But it doesn't just tell us that. It tells us something else. What's the solution to the diversity and the, the tension and the problems that we face today in our country? What's the solution? The Spirit of God. That's the solution. Because the Spirit of God wants to bring together all peoples in one message, but not change them to make them the same, but in their own difference to embrace the message of Jesus. It's right there. You know... You can't help but think about, hmm, I can't help it. I just, I read this, I think about this, I pray about this. 
think about how so many, so many places today that so many evidences in this Christian culture that clearly just aren't spirit-filled. They're just clearly not based on Scripture. Like over time, somehow it's just morphed into something very strange. I was thinking this week, when Jesus returns again to get us, oh, what a day that'll be. Today'd be a good day. But when he comes back to get us, the world he comes back to get us from is going to be a lot like the world he first came to save us from. Think about it. Because it was a jacked up place he came into the first time, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And religion had just bungled everything up. It's a lot like today. It's a lot like today. I was thinking about how, you know, kids are such an illustration of life. I was thinking about, you know, coaching my, my children's sports teams and how, for example, if you... If you coach a, a peewee football team, that when the, you know, the first day of practice, you know, all these kids come, and so you're just meeting them for the first time, and so they come, and, you know, all the kids are having fun. They're running around, banging into each other, rolling in the grass, you know, just doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And, man, they're all they're, you know, they're not really interested in learning about football. The only question is, like, what's the name of our team? What color is our jersey? When do we get our helmets? That's all they want to know, right? So it's all, then, you know, so the day, a couple, you know, practices of just running around like a bunch of maniacs, like you're herding cats. Then the big day comes, uniform day. Man, they're pumped. Boy, they are fired up, you know, and they want, they get their number, man. They put their jersey on. They go home. They're like, Mom, can I sleep in my jersey? Mom, can I wear my jersey to school? Mom, can I wear my jersey to church? Mom, can I take a shower in my jersey instead of you washing it? Mom, I never want to take it off. Look how cool it is. It's amazing. And then they put their helmet on. They walk around the house like, I'm invincible. Watch me walk into this wall. Boom, it didn't even hurt. Did you see that? It's amazing. And they're so fired up about football. And then practice changes. And we get one line of kids on this side and one line of kids on this side. And they start colliding with each other. And you know what? All those kids were so fired up about football, but after the first practice of collision, you got a bunch of kids that go, I don't think I want to play football anymore. I don't really like football. You can have my jersey back. See, you don't really know who is a football player until you start slamming into each other. Because you can't play football without contact. You know what I see a lot of? I see a lot of people who like the church team. They like to sing the songs. They like the jersey. But they don't like contact. They don't like it. They want it if it's fun. 
that entertains them. But they don't want they don't want contact. See, when the Spirit of God comes, there's contact. There's contact. So that would explain why the church has replaced the power of God with other things. See, that's what programming does. You can just program a bunch of stuff, and you can just get people moving through channels and just doing things. They don't even know why they're doing them. They're just doing them. And then you can take the Holy Spirit completely out of the equation, and it just keeps on going, and nobody even knows the difference. Where the Spirit of God is, there's contact. When when the Spirit of God shows up, there's going to be a hunger and a thirst for contact with what? Contact with one another. Contact with a hurting and broken world. Contact with darkness. Contact. That's what the Spirit does. Where the Spirit's not, it's just... Well, let's talk about what we can do for us. Let's make us more comfortable. Let's make us happier. Let's meet our needs. Let's build our earthly kingdom. That's what an earthly kingdom looks like. And the big charade is is that they actually think it has spiritual implications. But it doesn't. It doesn't. See, when the Spirit of God comes, you have, you have contact. You can't sit still. You can't close your eyes and just pretend that a million babies every year aren't murdered. You can't just do that. You can't just close your eyes and pretend that there's not hundreds of children in your community that don't have parents to love them. You can't do that. You can't just close your eyes and pretend like there's not needs everywhere. You can't just, you can't just ignore the fact that there's elderly people that are being taken advantage of and that are alone and that don't have anybody to watch over them. You you can't ignore that. When the Spirit comes, you become menders of what is broken. You You are inexplicably drawn to brokenness. You see, that's what the Spirit does. It draws us right into it. And the flesh is going, what are you doing? Back up. Go the other way. Don't do this. You're too busy. You'll do it later. You'll do it at a more convenient time. You'll do it at a... And it's just excuse after excuse. But the Spirit's going, no, now, now. So why? Why is... Why is so oftentimes there a void in people's lives. Don't you, don't you have those people in your life that like to, uh, you know, tell you about how, how they, they go to church because they know you go to church. So they go, well, I go to church. And then they start telling you about like how easy it is to go to their church. Like they're 
compel, like they think they're going to compel you because it's, it's easy. It's like, oh, yeah, I mean, we, we spend tens of thousands of dollars, you know, going on sightseeing trips and, you know, building big buildings so that we can just play in them and hosting comedy shows and the list goes on and on and on. Why? It's because, if you think about it, what, what are the requirements for the Spirit to fill us? What is it? What are the things the Spirit's looking for? What draws the Spirit into your life? Two things. To be filled with the Spirit, you need two things. You need emptiness and openness. You need emptiness and openness. Let me explain. The Spirit invades the life that is conscious of their need. Need. You need it. You, you know, you, you're not okay without God. Like, no, I'm not okay. I need God. We've been talking about this on Wednesday nights and Sunday nights in Hebrews. About how desperation unlocks the greatest gifts in God. You see, emptiness, it's a consciousness of need. But openness is what? A willingness to yield. See, first of all, there are people that are like, I need, I need, I need something. So there's this, there's evidence of a potential emptiness, but then there's no openness. You see, it takes both. I need God to come, and I am open to yielding to His authority. That's how you get filled with the Spirit. It's just... It's just simple logic. Emptiness. You can't fill something that's already full, can you? Can you? Openness. Can you fill something that's shut? No. Empty and open. Empty and open. That's what God fills. I'm going to show you some passages from the Old Testament because I want you to see the, the intentionality that God uses in the mission and the mending. And the thing about, the thing about these passages is it's like any other prophetic section of Scripture where on one hand I'm astonished at just the, the undeniable perfection of Scripture and how, it, how every little detail connects together spanning thousands of years. On one hand, I, I'm just astonished by that over and over and just love it. But on the other hand, I'm also just blown away that God 
for no other reason but grace. Because, see, he knows what he's going to do, and he's going to do what he's going to do. But he tells us anyway. That's the thing. He tells us in advance what he's going to do. You see? See, God is coming back, and that's how it's going to be, and it's never going to change, and nothing can ever stop that, but he wants us to know that he's coming back. And he's always been that way. It's just the grace of God. So Ezekiel 37, this will come up on the screen. The prophet Ezekiel, look at what the Scripture says. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones, this is the valley of dry bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. So the the indication here is because we know the word for spirit is the word for wind or the word for breath. And so God is easing us into this and saying, I will cause breath to enter you just like breath entered into Adam and Adam was alive. So there's the spirit and life. And then a few chapters, a few verses later in verse 12 of Ezekiel 37, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. Now look at verse 14. I will put my spirit in you and you shall what? Live. So again, we see this, the Spirit's coming, but now breath is going to enter into you. Now it's the Spirit into you, and it brings life. Hmm. And so we think about this passage in Acts chapter 2. We think about Jesus who is crucified Just like the day he was born was the fullness of time, the day that he's crucified is all in God's plan. So Jesus wasn't just crucified at any random time of the year, but he was specifically and intentionally by God crucified when? At Passover. So the scripture tells us he's crucified at Passover. And then the Spirit of God, Acts chapter 2 verse 1 says... When Pentecost had fully come. Now, we know Penta, we have the Pentagon, we know Pentecost would be 50. So, Pentecost is the celebration that comes 50 days after Passover. So, 50 days after Passover is when the Spirit comes. Now, Jesus is crucified at Passover. The Spirit of God comes 50 days, not 49, not 51, but 50 days after Passover on Pentecost. Now, why is that? Why were there all those people there? Well, they had all come from all their lands and nations to celebrate Pentecost, to celebrate, which was a celebration of the giving of the law, where God gave the law, made a covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai, gave him the Ten Commandments. That was the Celebration of Pentecost. I'll read this to you in Exodus 19 just to remind us. 
about what happened with the Ten Commandments. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely covered hmm, by what? Smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Now remember what Acts chapter 2 said. You with me? What did Ezekiel prophesy? The Spirit's going to come. You're going to get life. Pentecost happens 50 days after Passover. That's the day the Spirit comes. There's a rushing wind. There's tongues of fire. Okay. So the mountain is covered with smoke because God descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended up like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked greatly. And with a blast of a trumpet that sounded long and became louder and louder... Remember, there was a loud rushing wind. Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up, and the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn all the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them will perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. So what we see is fire falls on the mountain, and everyone has to stay away. You can't go near the fire. The fire will kill you. And God warns the people, listen, you, you got to back away from this fire. This fire is not safe. So what happens next? In Exodus 20, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And we're explained through the law all the way for the next ten chapters of Exodus. And then we come to Exodus 31. This will come up on the screen. So while Moses is up there with the fire, the people are not doing what they ought to do. The Bible says in Exodus 31, 18, and when Moses had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Moses descends down. The people are worshiping a golden calf, right? And there's all kinds of chaos that's ensued and everybody's rebelling against God verse 28 says so the sons of Levi those who were called to be the priests did according to the word of Moses and about 3,000 men of the people died that day so 3,000 people died fire falls get away people rebel 3,000 people died now, if we go back to Acts chapter 2, after the Spirit descends and people start speaking and everybody starts hearing, then we're going to find out next week that Peter's going to step up and preach a sermon that's going to be amazing. And we're going to see a million things in there that are going to be so wonderful for us. But at the culmination of the sermon, Acts chapter 2, verse 40 and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And the next verse, verse 41, And those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about how many souls were added to him? 
3,000. Three thousand people die because the fire comes and you can't get near it. But the next time the fire comes, the breath of God goes into people and they live. Now we need to think about what happened between those two occurrences. And here's a simple way to remember it. Bethlehem was God with us. Calvary was God for us. And Pentecost is God in us. So now, because of what Jesus did for us, the Spirit of God can come in us. And instead of killing us, it empowers us to do what God has called us to do. To, to live. To live. See, any life lived apart from the Spirit of God is, is wasted. It's a wasted life. That's not what you were made for. That's not what you were intended for. That's not what you have been created for. That's not why God knit you together. He made you to live and dwelt by and yielded to the Spirit of God that you might have power to do the things that He's commissioned you to do, to make the highest and best use of your life, to leverage the the circumstances that you're in and the people that you're around and the resources that He's granted you and everything about you has all been given to you by God for this reason. There's no more important thing that you need to know that every day you want to wake up and live as if the fire's falling fresh on you. You see, when we walk in the Spirit, we will not accomplish the works of the flesh. We'll do the things that God created us to do. And so we'll have ample time to talk about the Spirit of God and His work in us as we press forward. But I just want us to sort of end this morning by... thinking about this last question. For the saved, the question is not how much of the Holy Spirit do you have. That is not the question. If you're saved, you have the Spirit, all the Spirit, all the Spirit you need. That's not the question we need to be asking. The question we need to be asking is, how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? How much of us as a fellowship, how much of you, how much of your family does the Holy Spirit have? That's the question. So wherever you are this morning, if you don't know God as Lord and Savior, then... 
He doesn't have any of you, but he can have all of you right now in this moment. It's your opportunity. But if, you've, if, you're, if you're living a life that's, a, that's a, a counterfeit of what's intended to be, if your life is filled with, with activity, but it's not supernatural, the evidence of the Spirit of God is not evident in your life, then this morning is an opportunity to respond to that and to say, God, I come empty and open. I want you to fill me, Lord, that I might yield to you. That whatever time I have left on this earth, I want to give it for your glory and honor and praise. Let's stand and bow our heads.